Hello and welcome to a flat pack history of Sweden episode eight. Yes, it's time for even more ironing because we like ironing and the Iron Age. Yeah, we like it so much that it became two episodes. We didn't think originally that it would be, but when we had recorded the first one, it turned out we had so much material that we thought we better make a second. But that can't be too bad because it gives us more time to prepare for the Vikings as well. Definitely, and gives us time to present a lot more interesting things about this period in Swedish history. But before we continue with the Iron Age, should we do the Swedish phrase of the week? Yes, we should. And this week's phrase is "legganesan i blöt." Yeah, "legganesan i blöt," which literally means to put your nose somewhere wet. Interesting. <laughs> so it means to care about things that aren't your business. I suppose in English we also talk about the nose. You stick your nose in, and then we mean you know you're taking an interest in something that's got nothing to do with you. Can this one also mean you're being a bit sneaky? Yeah, I suppose it can. Like trying to find out stuff that you're not meant to be finding out. So you can say, "Mamma ska alltid lägga näsan i blöt när jag ska göra någonting." Mum always sticks her nose in things when I've got plans. So it's nose-centered in both Swedish and English. Well, that makes sense. Well, we are going to stick our nose not somewhere wet, but in the Iron Age. <laughs> all over that iron. <laughs> our noses are all over the Iron Age. Last week we talked about the pre-Roman Iron Age, where everything went a bit Neolithic again, I guess, and people skipped some of the progress that went on during the Bronze Age. But then we sort of brought it back to a more continual development of Sweden with the Roman Iron Age, with lots more contact with the outside world again, continuing with trade and generally putting the finishing touches to the foundations of what would be the exciting developments in the rest of the Iron Age and the Viking Age beyond that we're going to cover now. And this week, it's time to finish the whole thing off with what's usually considered the Third Iron Age period. And those are Germanic Iron Age migration and vendor periods. So we found a really good quote which sums up the migration and vendor periods from Brian Nordstrom's History of Sweden. How about you read that one out, Osa? Yes. The migration and vendor periods were times of great wealth, artistic creativity, changing cult and burial practices, and violence. The graves, houses, and treasure finds, remains of literally hundreds of fortifications, and a record of abandoned villages and farming sites reflect these characteristics. Many sections of arts, society, and politics in these periods may also be seen as direct precursors to the Viking Age. End quote. They're basically baby Vikings. Then it sounds like. Yeah, baby Vikings. <laughs> Just like baby Yoda, but baby Vikings. Oh, that's cute. And it does sound like that's the case when you look a bit deeper. And that's because this time of the migration and vendor periods coincides with the collapse of the Roman Empire in the West and the huge movements of barbarian peoples around Europe that came with it. And that basically rewrote the map considerably. 
But this didn't mean the end of trade or cultural development. The Roman Empire flourished in the East for another thousand years, and the development of the Frankish state in the West and the cultural richness of Iron Age Ireland are just two examples of the ongoing wealth in the West of Europe, which Swedes were absolutely eager to continue engaging with. Trade only increased in importance in this time, especially on those Swedish islands of Erland and Gotland, and in the Lake Mälaren region in the centre of the country. One place in particular was a trade and production site on an island called Helger in Lake Mälaren. There's a settlement there from around 400 to 800 CE, so right in this time, and excavations show that it was perhaps the centre of iron production for Sweden at this time, and the manufacture of intricate jewellery and other items took place here too. It was a real hub of commerce. It was the place to be if you're a Swedish metal worker. And traders, because some of the stuff found here, again, it's a bit like the Ullaburan shipwreck, because they had casting moulds, gold Roman coins, a bishop's staff from Celtic areas, and even a small bronze Buddha from India. Wow, all of that had made its way to an island in Lake Mälaren. Which is, yeah, extraordinary, really. I, I want to know how the Buddha got there in particular. Boat building also reached a high point, laying the foundation for some of those amazing Viking adventures we're going to see in the near future. And the knowledge certainly wasn't lost during this pre-Roman Iron Age that had gone before. No, they were still making boats, and they're still making boats now. Political change also started to take shape in this period, with some evidence of the first Swedish state-looking-like thing, maybe, centred in Uppland, extending into Östergötland and beyond, that was sort of slowly emerging, but this will become, again, much clearer in later periods. And for once, this isn't just in the south of Sweden. Uh, some of these areas are quite far north in terms of what we've been talking about so far. This shows you that this is the first period where these best people in society are not just in the very, very south. They're spreading all around these mini chieftains from the last episode in the Bronze Age. And so they were really far south, but now the rest of people are moving a bit farther north. So even though Orsa probably wants to think that the South is still the best part of Sweden, in this part of time, it's perhaps not the case. Yeah, I mean, I have been thinking how, you know, is it a coincidence that we're always talking about the South, the best people come from the South, you know? But still, like you said, Uppland and Östergötland are sort of central mid-Sweden, not really geographically, but in terms of the land that had been settled at this point. And as you would hope, there's lots of physical evidence of these political changes as well, because you can see this in literally hundreds of circular hill forts that are popping up all over the place. A bit like what's going on in Roman Britain or pre-Roman Britain, they would have been the centres of power for the power-hungry people, like the royals or top dogs in society, who are trying to assert their control over the population or the production centres. If you have that amazing trade centre near you, you as an elite would want to have somewhere nearby to take that money in taxes or do something else to take control of the trade. So that's one reason why they would have built these hill forts. All of this is linked to evidence, albeit a bit sketchy, of an emerging monarchy that may have been based on this iron production. 
The Vendor and migration periods of the Germanic Iron Age are known in the art world as the Age of Gold, because Nordic artisans produced masses of gold items, ranging from rings and bracelets to clasps and other things, and they were also decorating their weapons. Most of this gold probably came from the Eastern Roman Empire, uh, which was then melted down and then turned into something that the locals wanted themselves. But there was also a lot of gold coming in from the collapse of the Roman Empire in the West, as Roman towns and cities were plundered and these barbarians decided to just go back home because the army doesn't exist anymore. And all of this sort of stuff, they're bringing with them goods to Sweden. And because of all this wealth, people wanted to keep it safe. You got all this cool gold stuff, you want to be sure it's kept safe. We see the beginning of hoarding when people had to bury their goods before battle or any kind of drama, not knowing if they would live to get it back. Yeah, and the fact that there were so many hill forts around show you that there was certainly some kind of violence back home in Sweden, as well as these people who were going off and serving in the armies of Mediterranean and European warlords. And that kind of stuff is all great for us now, because loads of these people who did bury all their gold in a field just didn't come home from the battle, and so they left all their gold under the soil for farmers to dig up in the 1750s or whenever it was and take it home with them then. Indeed. And finally, where would we be without rock art? Or this time it's actually more like stone art. Yeah, we talked a lot about rock art in the Bronze Age episodes, but now we're back for some more. And now, the carvings that we talked about from before that were on rocks have turned into huge stone slabs being set up and carved on with detailed pictures of axes, serpents, armed men, and, of course, our favourite image of all time, boats. I'm sure we'll have time to focus more on this as we reach the Viking Age, as that is really when these stone slabs with carvings on them get really quite impressive. Yeah, we'll save the rock art, I think, for a special episode in the Viking period, perhaps, or uh, mention it briefly later on. We're mentioning the Iron Age origins now, just because it's a, kind of a bit important to talk about it a little bit before it gets really good later on. Yeah, so then we'll talk all about it at once. Now, as we've briefly mentioned, until the Germanic and Vendel period, there is definitely a lack of sources. There is a fair amount from the Roman Iron Age, but a lot of it is not natively produced in Sweden. they are items brought in from abroad. All good to show the extent of trade and connections at the time, but perhaps not much evidence for the work of the Swedes themselves. So it is true that that period is sometimes called the Age of No Finds by Swedish historians and archaeologists. Historians speculate that it might be because conditions were harsher in this period. Personally, I also wonder if it suffers a bit being the period in history that came just before this incredibly popular and much-researched Viking Age. So, you know, maybe people skipped this to get to the good Viking stuff. Yeah, that's probably a good way of guessing it. It's like being a warm-up band to an incredibly famous band and nobody wants to listen to you. They're there to see the people they paid the money for. 
Yeah, I mean, in many ways, the Iron Age is the bicycling monkeys that opened up for the Beatles. Uh, okay. That's a reference for anyone who's watched Friends. Yeah, which I haven't, so I don't understand that reference at all. No, but more fool you. Now we have some cool evidence that's probably not worth talking about, but we should just mention that they exist, because it's better if you go and have a look at them yourselves, um, not in person, but just on the internet. Uh, so there's a load of gold necklaces that pop up at this time. There's the Muna Collar from the Germanic Iron Age, and that's from Vestergötland. And then there's a five-tiered necklace from Fjærjestad on Erland. And these are really super cool, so you should probably just Google them or search for them. The Muna Collar is just M-O-N-E, so money without Y at the end, uh, if you don't have the Swedish characters, uh, because it has the Swedish O on it, the Myrna collar. But just M-O-N-E will uh, get it up for you on the internet. And also, from this period, we have a find that's not from Sweden, but still very interesting. It's the Tollund man from Denmark. Now, the Tolun man is a naturally mummified corpse of a man who lived in the 4th century. He was found in 1950, preserved as a bog body on Jutland in Denmark. It's actually quite scary how lifelike he looks after thousands of years. Yeah, it's definitely pretty grim when you see pictures of him. Apparently, when he was found, the people thought he might be a recent murder victim, not a body from the Iron Age, because he was so well preserved in the bog. Yeah, you can see how that might actually happen. And do try and find a picture of him too. It's Tolland Man, so just T-O-L-L-A-N-D. And now are some of my favourite things. There are stone and turf labyrinths or mazes that you have, like in these uh, country houses and things in the UK or in the park. Uh, they're just mazes that you walk around as a child. But these ones are made out of stone. And they're not like head height or anything like that. They're just marked down on the ground. So you have all these patterns that are actually a maze. And there's loads of these from the later Iron Age. And talking of stone carving, one in particular uh, is actually a really cool one, which is a bit like a snake or a witch type thing on Gotland. And also on Gotland, there's a place called Loister Hall, which is around 30 metres long and 6 to 8 metres wide. And it's a bit like a big triangle-shaped Iron Age hall. And this one isn't really a find as such. It's actually a reconstruction from the 1930s. But like a lot of stuff that was going in the 30s, they excavated it then and they've now remade it. And it's partly made out of this weird swamp sawgrass, which is apparently from the area. Um, we've got a picture here also. Do you want to say what it looks like? Yeah, I mean, it looks like if you've ever seen thatched roof cottages from Northern Europe, but the thatched roof goes all the way to the ground. So it's like all roof in a V shape like that. Yeah, it actually kind of looks a bit like a wooden grassy tent. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. A massive grassy tent. Well, it's something that's pretty cool, to be honest. Yeah, definitely. Now, something that happened during the Iron Age, we mentioned it briefly, and I'm personally quite excited about this, it's the fact that Sweden gets its first mentions in written sources from abroad. Yeah, people finally noticed something was going on in a place called Sweden up in the north. Yay, our existence is acknowledged. But to be fair, it's fairly vague. Like, when Sweden gets its first mention in written sources, it's a bit generic, a bit weird, and 
there's definitely no use of the word Sweden yet. No, that's coming a lot further on in the future. And like you were saying, in these first sources, you don't really know if the people are talking about a real place or if they're describing something that they think is a bit like Narnia or they're just passing on some weird story they heard in the pub. All of them are a bit weird and a bit wrong. Definitely. These early mentions are in sources left by Roman and Greek traders and scholars. Most of them, if in fact not all of them, had never been anywhere near Sweden or Scandinavia. I mean, why leave the sunny Mediterranean to go explore some far-off cold place? But, you know, it's just nicer to rely on second-hand sources. So there's quite a few, actually. First, there's Herodotus, the Greek historian, who's uh, sometimes referred to as the father of history. He talks about a land beyond the kingdom of Skeeta, where the winter lasts for eight months and where the summers are cold. Well, to be honest, that does sound a bit like Sweden. (laughs) Yeah, that could be Sweden. There's also Pythias, another Greek, who introduced the term Thula, which many have interpreted as being the Nordic region or Scandinavia in general. Yeah, similarly, Virgilius, who is an old favourite of mine, also used the term Thule or Ultima Thule, meaning the land furthest away, which I quite like as a term. If you've ever been to rural northern Sweden, like I was recently, you can certainly feel what he meant. It is a land far away. Unfortunately, both Thule and Ultima Thule has later on been used and is still used nowadays in, like, far-right extremist propaganda, which is a sad sign of the use, or rather misuse, of history for nationalistic and extremist purposes. Yeah, you see that a lot, and uh, I think all countries have particular aspects of history that certain groups like to claim in one way or another, uh, but, you know, that's uh, something completely different. I'm also surprised to hear that you said that Virgilius is an old favourite. I mean, are you kidding me? I'm a big fan. Ever since his role in the Divine Comedy. Um, okay. Sure. (laughs) Yeah, it's a joke. Virgilius is the guy who guides Dante through the circles of hell in the Divine Comedy, though. Anyway, the area that's today Sweden gets more mentions during this period. Yeah, you have Tacitus and his book De Germania, and this is the very first mention of potential Swedish forebears and the Suones, which uh, we talked about in the very first episode, actually. We also have Procopius. He talked about a group of migratory people who lived in the general area of southern Sweden and Denmark, uh, again without naming them, just saying, some people live over here. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they're not that important, it seemed like. It seemed like they just didn't care. They were vague. There were some people living in this random area. Yeah, but when you go away from being vague, perhaps the most accurate, um, if you can call it accurate, was Jordanius. He wrote about the Great Migration Period and an area called Skansa, when he said there was a place that was a hive of races or a womb of nations. And then he talks about that there's over 20 tribes in the area and they all get together and do stuff as a group. So that was probably, maybe, Scandinavia. And as much as we do love this, 
stuff. We'll be talking a lot about it when we uh, talk in the next episode about the gap between this time and the Viking Age, where we touch on the sagas and how a lot of this stuff is second, third, fourth, or fifth hand stories. And perhaps not fake per se, but not really grounded in particularly that much evidence. So we can talk about how it's not necessarily history per se, it's sort of indicative of what might be happening, but certainly not anything along the lines of, in 20 CE, this bloke did this and spoke to this lady. It's much more vague than that. Yeah, and next episode, we will talk about where that sort of Venn diagram between history and myth meet, but that'll be next time. Speaking of writing in general, the runic scripts, uh, most known as the writing style of the Vikings, was developed in the 2nd century CE. And the brief inscriptions that remain from this time demonstrate that the people of South Scandinavia spoke a proto-Norse, which was a language with a direct ancestry link to modern Swedish. Yeah, this is the time when we get to the good old runor, the rune writing, something that all Swedish kids learned about in middle school. Do you want to cast your mind back and try and uh, remember what you learnt then about the runes? So maybe audio isn't the best format to do this, but we'll put a picture on Facebook and Twitter so that you can refer to something visually as well. So, to put it simply, runes are letters forming an alphabet, just like the letters in the Latin alphabet that we use in English, or the letters used in the Cyrillic alphabet, or whatever writing you refer to. They are symbols in a written language, that's the key. In fact, they are the oldest evidence of a written language in Sweden. The language used at this time was quite different from modern-day Swedish in many ways, to the extent that if some guy was transported into the modern day from the 3rd century CE and started talking his own runey-type language, people would pretty much not be able to understand anything he was saying. Yeah, as someone who reads and writes in modern Swedish, I can't just all of a sudden switch and write something in rune script, even though that would be cool. We'll return to Runor when we get to the Vikings, because that's when we get these famous rune stones, the big stones with lengthy inscriptions on them. But we actually start getting writing in rune script before that. Yeah, you don't go from writing nothing to then writing on giant, massive memorial stones. No, and the oldest evidence of rune writing in Sweden has been dated to the century 200 CE, and they're not big stuff like stones. On the contrary, they're written on small items like a buckle or the tip of a spear. So there were some rune stones erected this early, but most writings were on these smaller objects. Early rune alphabet is also slightly different from that which was used during the Viking Age. The alphabet is similar to the one used around the Mediterranean at this time, but the link between the early rune alphabet and other alphabets used in other places at the time is still something that's debated and researched. Yeah, it gets quite complicated when you go into it in this depth, but there's also no writing on paper or anything like that, or even on wax tablets like the Romans used, so it's all really stone or item-based. Yeah, in Scandinavia it was hard 
literally, there was nothing as sophisticated as paper or papyrus or the tablets the Romans used. Rune writing is something that's carved into things rather than written down. It's we're talking about carving it into objects like stone or buckles rather than nicely writing it down. Yeah, it's very interesting and we'll definitely put up some photos on social media so we can see what these things look like. Now I think it's time to introduce two names that will crop up again and again from now on, the Svear and the Götar. As we've said time and time again, there is no Sweden yet, no unified political entity or identity among the people as Swedes in Sweden yet. It will be well into the Middle Ages before we see Sweden form in the political boundaries a bit close to what we see the country as today. It will only get the current shape in terms of the actual borders we have today in the early 1800s, so this stuff is really transient and changes all the time. But what we do see during the Iron Age in Sweden, especially during the first century CE, are two groups, two communities of people, if you will, called Svear and Götar. So what we know of them borders again on the mythical, like we said, that crossing point between myth and factual history. Broadly speaking, the Svear inhabited the area around Lake Melleren and modern-day Stockholm. So they were the ones in charge of all that trade and production and all of that kind of stuff we've talked about. And the Jörta lived further south and a bit more to the west, so pushing towards modern-day Norway and the west coast of Sweden. So we're now talking about the middle bit of southern and central Sweden. The very, very south we've been talking about is Skorna and Blekinge. They're much more closely connected to Denmark and would remain so for centuries. So this is actually really the time where we say goodbye to these regions in terms of Swedish history. Because in the Viking times especially, they're Danish Vikings. So we won't really be talking about these places much more until uh, a lot later on. We'll obviously be talking about when the Swedish Vikings fight the Danish Vikings. But um, the Skorna and Blekinge regions won't be part of Sweden again for quite a while now. So it's bye-bye Skåne, bye to my native land, who will for hundreds of years be closely connected and later on part of Denmark, the Danish kingdom, and not formally rejoin Sweden until the 1600s. You've also got the really far north of Sweden, and almost now what we would call the top half of the country. And that was basically not really explored, and certainly not inhabited to a great extent at this point. There absolutely were people living up there, but they wouldn't really be connected to these sort of tribal groupings of people, or part of any kind of political system going on uh, with these Sverre and Jörta. Yeah, back to the Sverre and Jörta. Some people attribute the name Sweden to Svear or the Suonians that Tacitus talked about in his text, but I think it's easy to see that. Just, oh, look, they word look and sound a bit similar, so let's just assume that is the thing. And old historians used to believe that Sweden is simply the continuation of the kingdom of the Svear because they emerged victorious from wars with other groups. 
But as we'll see in the next episode, the many episodes to come, the formation of Sweden isn't really that easy, and it is kind of like, oh, how did Sweden form? Well, it was these guys, but it's not really how it happened. It's probably not the best way of talking about it either. Nor is it likely that the name Sweden, or Sverige in Swedish, has much to do with the Sveja either, and modern historians think that it's possibly more likely to come from the ancient Norse word, which meant ours or belonging to us. So Sverarika, as Sweden is formally known today, the Kingdom of Sweden, would simply mean the land of ours or our land. Similarly, historians believe, and there might still be those who do, that the Götar are the original Goths, and now I mean the historical Germanic people, not the teenagers that like to wear a lot of eye makeup. Yeah, it's not just teenagers. No, true, true. The Gothic subculture is not limited by age. But anyway, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the many historical people called Goths. In general, it's quite murky what's known about Götar, and much of what was taken as facts for previous generations of historians is being questioned today. Maybe the people of southern and western Sweden, the area that's usually attributed to being where the Götar lived, they were not one unified people, but rather had separate kings and chieftains... Yeah, it's, it's really murky. And some historians, especially as we said, those older historians, also say that Herulii and Urulii were a group of barbarians during the Roman period, which we mentioned, said that these started in Scandinavia. And that may be the case, but there's so much debate about this and a lot of basically guesswork in the sources and assumptions being made in modern sources, early medieval sources, and sources from the time. So we're really treading the area between history and myth now, something uh, that modern historians are changing their views on all the time. So I think that's probably good enough now to just say that the Sveja and Yata are names of people who were probably in the area of what's modern day Sweden and probably started doing stuff in this period. But uh, we're not going to give any official stamps of approval saying this is 100% correct because we don't know that. No, and it's just two names that will come up when you study Swedish history in this period. So it's good to know a little bit about them, the Svear and the Götar. And so now as we finish our sort of roundup of the Germanic Iron Age, it's time to look at something that's a bit more physical and substantial than the general theories around the Svea and Jörta. And that's actually a place, a place called Alastena. Yeah, Alastenar, or in English it would be Alastones. Stenar is the Swedish word for stones. And uh, Ala being a name of a person. Yeah. So it's this guy's stones. And it's quite a personal place for us in, in some ways, and it's probably my favourite place to go and visit in the south of Sweden when it comes to this period of history. And that's because it's a stone ship, or a you know, kind of henge, like Stonehenge. And it's actually the cover photo that we have on uh, Twitter and Facebook. So if you want to see what it looks like, uh, just go to one of those accounts, and it's a photo that we have from above, actually. Yeah, we should perhaps give it some context. It's where I grew up is... You grew up in the stones. I grew up <laughs> in the Ring of Stones. No, I grew up not far from the Ring of Stones. So when we go to see my parents who still live in the area, it's quite close uh, to do a little 
outing or a little trip to go see them. And you sort of almost, well, you do have a professional connection there because you've been a tour guide there. Yeah, one of my many, many, many summer jobs that I had in my early 20s was as a tour guide at Arlestenar, Sweden's largest and best preserved stone ship. So we should explain a bit what a stone ship actually is. Well, yeah, like I said, it's a bit like Stonehenge in the sense that it's a load of big, heavy stones arranged in a shape on the ground. Uh, This isn't a ship that goes sailing because it would sink pretty quickly. And uh, this time it's a ship shape rather than a circle or a ring like Stonehenge. And Arlestena is really big, as we said. It's the biggest ship in Sweden, and that's because it's made of 59 stones, each of which are about 5 tonnes each, so they're huge. And the overall shape is 67 metres long and 19 metres wide, so it really is big. And the Carbon-14 dating system says that the ship dates from around 500 CE or up to 1000 CE. So it's either in this period we're talking about, the Germanic Iron Age, or even pushes into the Viking period a bit. The best estimate in terms of the actual date when it's from is probably roughly 600 CE. And it's a much disputed stone ship, perhaps because archaeological digs in the area hasn't been able to discover much. It's not been able to clarify really what it was. And that's because the site itself has been used for farming. So if you go there, you'll see cows wandering in and out of the stones. It's not boarded off or separated by barriers or anything like that. The cows live there too. Plus, the whole area was really fortified during the Second World War. Even though Sweden wasn't invaded, they were certainly getting prepared to be invaded. So there are radar sites, I think it is, that one was literally 10 metres away, which is quite amazing. And the whole part of this Swedish coast is covered in bunkers and defense systems that are still there today so that's uh, another reason to go and visit you can see this foundation of this radar station right next to the Arlestena stones yeah in however many hundreds of episodes time we'll perhaps do a special episode on the fortification of the Swedish south coast but Anyway, the stones have also changed and been moved around because, yeah, this was just farmland that people used. It still looks like a ship today, though. Definitely. Uh, It has been restored. And judging by other stone ships, though, this has something to do with burials. Either people were buried at the site or burials were held there. The ship was a symbol of the journey to the other side for much of ancient Norse history. So that's the significance of these stone ships, because Olestenar, whilst it's very big and very cool, it's not unique. You find these stone ships across Scandinavia, into northern Germany and in the Baltic states. And I know we mentioned in the last episode that there are hundreds and hundreds just on the island of Gotland alone. So this is certainly a Swedish thing in some ways. But taken in the context of a wider European idea, and I think like all of these places, there's so much that is up for debate and discussion. Uh, A bit like a throwback to one of the first episodes when we talked about the temples in Malta. In general, it's anybody's guess, really. You can certainly judge and use evidence to decide what you think is most likely, and perhaps nail down a a decent guess at when it comes from but getting what the actual real idea was and what people were thinking when they were making these things is a, a little bit harder 
At Alistair there has certainly been another very vocal but not scientifically proven theory that the stone ship is actually a sundial or a sun calendar because of how the sun shines on the formation of stones at certain points. So that's a vocal, but I should stress, not scientifically proven theory. Yeah, and it's vocal because the man behind this theory is very dedicated to his theory. Uh, when you go to the site, there's, you know, you get those information boards which tell you things about the site. And then there's one from the Swedish government or Swedish Heritage uh, Association or whatever it's called that run these sites saying, Arlestainer is this, this and this. And the man who loves his own theory has put his own board up right next to it saying, oh, don't believe this. My knowledge is the truth and all those kind of things. Yeah, I think the lesson here is really that we need nuance and we need a nice, friendly debate in history. Debate is good, but it should be constructed in friendly and polite ways. Uh, it's important to not be too harsh, which the debate on Olesteinar has sometimes been. Yeah, exactly. And going back very briefly to the Temples of Malta, I think their museum there is perhaps the best one at this kind of thing, because when you go in there to look at these temples, there's a, a timeline of the history of thought about the temple. So it says stuff like, in the 1850s, the archaeologists thought this, and in 1890s, they thought this, and blah, blah, blah. And it ends with, some people now think it's this, but who knows, any one of these people could be right, and uh, which one do you think, or... Or should it be a mix of both? And I think that's a really clever and grown-up way of a museum to say that we're not giving you the answers. We're just telling you what some people think and go around and have a look at it yourself and take it from there. And I think that was really good of that, the Temple Museum in Malta. Yeah, that is really good. And regardless of what Alistaina was and the history of it, I must say it's a beautiful place. It's one of my favourite places as well. Uh, it's so peaceful. It's often quite windy so you kind of feel the force of nature up there and you get an amazing view out over the Baltic Sea. Yeah, because I think that's something we didn't mention at the start. It's actually only 50 metres from the sea and up on a, a sort of a mini cliff. So it's it's right there, open to the elements. And this is another reason why the, the ship-related ideas about the site have come into prominence. Because not only does it look like a ship, it's right by the sea. If you want to go and visit it, it's located about 10 kilometers east of the town of Ystad on the Swedish south coast, not far from Malmö and Copenhagen on the Danish side. And like you said, it's uh, on a hill. It's called the Kåseberga Ridge at Hammarsbackar. It's a very hilly, very beautiful area. And uh, most importantly, perhaps, it's free. Uh, like we said, there's no barriers because it's just a field with cows, uh, so you can just turn up whenever you like. You've mentioned the cows twice now. Uh, the, the cows don't feature, like, as an historical aspect of the site. They're just there to graze the land. Are you sure they're not the guards or the guardians of the stones? <laughs> no, maybe they are the, the guardians of the stone. But they're also just really, really nice lawnmowers to keep the grass short around uh, the stones. Yeah, I mean, you could use them as a, a cow lawnmower, um, although you probably wouldn't want that because of all the poop. <laughs> no, you do have to uh, be careful not to step in cow dung when you go visit Arlestana. Yeah, I wonder if there's some sort of like spirit, Viking spirit that comes up and sweeps the poop away every now and then so the tourists don't step on it. Because I don't actually remember that much poop uh, <laughs> around it from last time. <laughs> 
Well, I don't know. But anyway, go visit, keep an eye out for the cow dung. And on that note, shall we round off today's episode? Speaking of cow dung, this episode was rubbish. Let's end. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The weirdest segue ever you've done. (laughs) Speaking of cow dung, it's time to end. (laughs) This is why I never got a job as a radio reporter or presenter. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, I think that now we're approaching the Viking Age, we do need to have this sort of gap episode to talk about what we need to be careful of when we reach the Viking Age in terms of history and accuracy and the myths and the sagas. And yeah, do a sort of introduction to the Viking Age episode before we get into the real hardcore content. <laughs> Exactly. As we've already noticed, it is important to not come down too heavily on fact in this period, arguably maybe throughout history, but the Bronze Age, Iron Age and into the Viking Age in particular, there is so much intersection of myths and facts and histories that we wanted to dedicate an entire episode to that. So that's what we'll do next time before we dive fully into what Sweden is perhaps most famous for. I don't know. It feels like our most famous era of history is the Vikings. Yeah, because I don't think you can call like ABBA and IKEA (laughs) history just yet. It's still modern day culture, isn't it? True, true. We peaked with the Vikings and then we peaked again with ABBA and IKEA. Despite of all we said about being careful of history, the Viking Age is going to be really fun because it's going to be the first time where we have actual real dates for events. Uh, You know, not just at some point in these 500 years this thing might have happened. We'll see and reach times where we can say in 789 and sometimes, you know, even months and days, uh, this thing happened. So we're looking forward to that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's exciting. But until then, please leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to us on. That means a huge amount for us. So thank you for the reviews you've already left, and please keep leaving them. You can get in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter, or sending us an email, or uh, getting in touch with us via our website, where you can uh, find links to all of those places. And that is www.aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com. Yeah, and we'll see you next time. Take care. Hey, doll.